there is a surety, um, an affirmation of, of who we are when we recognize the fact that God is with us, um, that he surrounds us like the psalm writer describes there in the way that the mountains surround Jerusalem. So he's with us this morning. Um, he is surrounding us as we worship, as we focus on him this morning, because we long to see his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. So this morning we're going to be continuing with our short um, series on the theme that exists in scripture about cities. Um, just before we go, I need to apologize for my voice. Um, I've had this longing, um, throaty cough. What script for next? This cough has declared that there is no lozenge. <laughs> there is no cough syrup. Praise the Lord. So if I sip some water, please excuse me. So last week, we, we introduced this theme of the city that appears throughout Scripture. Um, I tried to give an overview of the theme as it exists, um, meandering throughout Scripture, pointing out just a few of the high points, a few of the low points as the, as the story of city progresses to a climax um, throughout Scripture. And so, as we noted, our story begins in a garden um, in the book of Genesis, which appeared to be the ideal human state. The ideal human state for us in the very beginning was being present in a garden. But then we noted, surprisingly, that our story ends with a city rather than a garden in the book of Revelation. And the garden motif doesn't go away. It, it comes up every now and again in, in, in the narratives throughout Scripture. So it's, it's still there. So there's this image of us starting in a garden, but then God moves and works with us to um, a climax, which is, as we note, a city. So this morning we're going to again... Um, zoom in on some of the details that, um, that I mentioned last week. And again, we will end um, in a time of prayer as we focus our prayers on two suburbs um, within our city. And so some of the details that we will look at again, I think, um, might show us this morning the good, the bad, and some of the ugly sides um, of what city life holds that we are very familiar with. And so what we will do is we'd look at two cities in particular that help us to see more clearly this flow of what happens when man builds a city and decides to keep God out as opposed to when um, man builds a city and rather invites God in and places him at the very center, at the very heart of that space. And so I think as we unpack the stories, we will see the flow of, again, the best of times <clears throat> and the worst of times, and how the city, again, is a reflection of what actually is in our hearts. Now, almost all ancient cities had holy places within their walls. <clears throat> 
Most cities had structures and buildings that had monuments and carvings. There are ancient cities that had structures like pyramids. We can see these um, Giza um, in Egypt, uh, statues, temples, or sacred shrines, shrines in central places of their respective cities. So we see there we've got um, Giza on the bottom right there, um, and then there's the city of Persepolis, which was believed to be the Persian capital. There we can see the city of Athens, and, how, and we recall how they would worship their gods in their cities with their little shrines. And on the top left there is the Great Zimbabwe, a city that dates back to 1000 BC, um, I believe, and I stand to be corrected, Zimbabwe means houses of stones. Um, so even on the continent, we have many, many ancient cities um, that remind us of this aspect of cities being built with sacred places within their walls. Now, when we consider cities such as Babylon, which is one we will be focusing in on, or Jerusalem, it becomes evident that in ancient times, these two cities could actually be viewed as rival holy cities, rival holy places, because they were in exist existence around the same times and their paths crossed, as we will see. Um, <clears throat> Babylon was the city of the towers. On the left-hand side there, we see, we see what Babylon might have looked like. Um, a lot of the ruins still exist today. Um, quite interestingly, I don't know if you can recall Saddam Hussein. He was actually responsible for rebuilding much of what existed, what was left of, of the ruins in Babylon. In fact, he built his palace on a section of what was left of the ruins of Babylon. Um, and Babylon was the city of pagan religion. It was a city of imperialism, of materialism, but it was also a city of majestic splendor. Um, while Jerusalem on the right there was something completely other, and we'll look at that as well. In the Bible, for most of the Old and the New Testament, Babylon was the city <coughs> of consummate evil. It was the city that was in constant rebellion to Yahweh. Now, the ancient city of Babylon plays quite an important role in the Bible as a place that represents this theme of rejecting the one true God. Babylon is in fact referenced in, in the Bible about 280 times from Genesis to Revelation. Babylon was situated in modern day Iraq, as I mentioned, in ancient Mesopotamia on the eastern bank of the Euphrates River and was founded by King Nimrod, which is explained for us in Genesis chapter 10, verses um, 9 and 10. Now, in order for us to understand a little bit more about this city and this theme that it holds of being a place that works to keep God out, <clears throat> we want to look at the beginnings of this city 
with a story that is very familiar to us, that outlines the desires of the hearts of the men and women who lived in this city. And so we're going to read from Genesis chapter 11, a well-known text, and we'll read the first nine verses of Genesis 11. And this is what it says. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, <clears throat> If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel or Babylon, depending on which translation of Bible you use, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Most of us recognize that, that tower. Has anybody been there? Frank's been there. Lloyd's been there. Okay, so that, that is called the Burj Khalifa. Um, apparently, Burj is the Arabic word which means tower, and Khalifa is a word that they use in Arabic um, to substitute the word king or president, so it is the tower of the king. Um, it was finished in 2010, amazingly, it just took six years to build. It is 828 meters tall. The tallest building in Cape Town is the, the, the port side towers, no? The port side towers is only 139 meters tall. So it is more than five portside towers um, on top of one another. Um, and coupled with the record that this tower holds as being the, the tallest building in the, on the planet, it also has the highest restaurant in the world, the highest residential apartment. Um, it has the tallest elevator. Apparently this elevator moves at 60 k's an hour. Um, to get up and down there as, as quickly as it can. And apparently the, the air conditioners produce so much condensation that it's actually enough to water all of the gardens around the building. Um, and it takes the window cleaners three months to wash the 24,000 windows on that building. 
Um, it truly is, hey Frank? It is a breathtaking marvel of the ability of man. Now, now, in the visitor's center in the building, there is a plaque that is displayed among many other things. And this plaque expresses the intentions of the owners of this tower. And this is what the plaque looks like. And let me read for you the words. This is what it says on the plaque. It says, I am the power that lifts the world's head proudly skywards surpassing limits and expectations, rising gracefully from the desert and honoring the city with a new glow. I am an extraordinary union of engineering and art with every detail carefully considered and beautifully crafted. I am the life force of collective aspirations and the aesthetic union of many cultures. I stimulate dreams stir emotions and awaken creativity. I am the magnet that attracts the wide-eyed tourist, eagerly catching their postcard moment, the center for the world's finest shopping, dining and entertainment, and home for the world's elite. I am the heart of the city and its people, the marker that defines Imar's ambition and Dubai's shining dream. More than just a moment in time, I define moments for future generations. I am Burj Khalifa. Wow. Now, now when I read that, um, I cannot help but be reminded of the intentions and the desires of the people who built that city <clears throat> with a tower that would reach to the heavens on the plains of Shinar, expressing their desire to make a name for themselves. Now coming back to the text that we read, Genesis 11 is the only time in scripture where people are openly declaring to make a name for themselves. But that doesn't mean actually that it's inherently an offensive act. And I'll, I'll try to explain that. <clears throat> I think there's something deeper that is happening here in the text than just what jumps out at us. You know, people, including us, we make a name for ourselves through anything that would cause us to be remembered in future generations. And so making a name is actually a phrase that speaks of honor and admirable reputation. In the Old Testament where this phrase, making a name, is used, it is used most often to refer to God making a name for himself. A great name that enhances his reputation as mentioned there in Isaiah chapter 63 and Nehemiah chapter 9. And on a few occasions, it refers to God actually also making a name for someone. As we see in um, Genesis chapter 12, 
and 2 Samuel chapter 7 as well, we see there God making a name for Abram and for David. And so it seems like it is always positive when mentioned in Scripture like that. And so we don't really have much evidence to substantiate the, the idea that making a name was inherently a bad thing in the ancient world, though possibly in today's culture we may be inclined to think of it as egotistical. In the ancient world, making a name for yourself was something like leaving a legacy. <coughs> and so even their desire to not scatter cannot be viewed essentially also as an offensive act. As it is not the same as not wanting to fill the earth, like, like Yahweh said, because they were family. And families generally resist scattering. If wanting to make a name for themselves and leaving a legacy <coughs> and having desire for community are normal and harmless, then there is something more that is being expressed in this story about the citizens of the city called Babylon. <coughs> now, over many years of study, an investigation, it has been discovered that the Tower of Babel was a structure called in ancient times a ziggurat. <clears throat> now, a ziggurat is a stepped structure, as we can see there, that has a wide base with stepped stories that lead to the top. And right at the top of the tower there, in many designs, right at the top there, would be a little temple that would be built. Um, and these ziggurat towers were not for people to ascend up to heaven, but rather for their God to descend down from heaven. And so the idea was that the tower <coughs> provided a convenience by which the God could make a grand entrance into the temple where they would receive worship. <clears throat> now, in the ancient Near East, worship consisted of rituals designed to meet the supposed needs of the gods. And the Babylonians, amongst others, <coughs> believed that the gods had needs. The gods needed food, they needed clothing, they needed livestock, and so on. And that the gods had created people to meet those needs. And for them, that is all that the gods cared about in the understanding of the people of that time. The religious practice in the system wasn't defined by faith or by doctrine, by ethics, or theology, it was essentially defined as the care and the feeding of the gods. And in return for this kind of worship, the gods would protect and make those people prosper. 
and so a pampered, well-cared-for God made for a flourishing city. So what was wrong with this and why was Yahweh displeased? Why did Yahweh at the end of it all decide to disperse these people through disrupting their communication? You see, the problem was that these Babylonian people wanted to make God perpetually indebted to them. They wanted God to owe them something consistently. And so out of that, they would be a people, they would be a city that would constantly flourish. And so their fame would spread and they would be a people favored by God and everyone would know this. <coughs> and so the problem wasn't essentially that they wanted to make a name for themselves. The problem was that they were working to exploit a relationship with God so that their city would flourish. And the construction of their city with a tower that would reach into the heavens was ultimately about selfish motives. <coughs> Thank you, sorry. It's this thinking of who can I have a relationship with that would advantage my own position or my own prosperity? Who can I use to get to where I want to be? And Yahweh saw this kind of thinking, knowing that it would become a foundational principle in the life of the city that would permeate the very fibers of the city. It would be a city of people who have fake relationships, <clears throat> dishonest relationships with each other for selfish gain. A city of people who would be willing to trample on the needs of others to advantage themselves. Beginning right at the top with their relationship to God, and this would cascade down to the hearts of all of its citizens. And unsurprisingly, it is a way of being that brings great worldly success, as the text tells us there. Now, I wonder if we know of cities like that. But you see, God has always expressed to us the desires of his heart in many ways. When Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment of God, he said in Matthew chapter 22, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so as soon as we deviate from those commandments, we see the breakdown of relationships between men, women, and God. Now as we transition um, with Babylon 
to Jerusalem, we note that Babylon went on to become a very powerful nation. We read about the might and the power of the Babylonian Empire in the story of Daniel and in other stories as well. But Babylon's greed went on to have a devastating effect on the city of Jerusalem as well. Now we don't have time to unpack that, but in the year 597 BC, the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem surrendered. And the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar pillaged the city of Jerusalem and he took into exile its most prominent citizens. And it was in Babylon where Daniel was born. Um, Psalm 130 tells us something about that moment in time. I wanted to play Uncle Cliffy. I wanted to play, you remember Boney M? Yeah. <laughs> the rivers of, by the rivers of Babylon, based on this. Um, but then I thought, nah. This is what Psalm 137 says. By the, rivers, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. And there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Psalm 137 is an expression of the feelings of the citizens of Jerusalem towards their capture, their exile to Babylon, and their love for the city of Jerusalem. It is a lament of longing and remembrance for their city and what it was while they had to face life in this distant, hostile land. Now, up to today, for Jews and Christians alike, Jerusalem, the city, is not just a significant place in both past and present Jewish history, but is equally important as a religious concept that transcends time. Let me say that again. Jerusalem is this concept, it is this impression, an image that moves along with every generation that comes along. So Jerusalem is more than just a city, actually. It represents something in similar ways that Babylon represented something. 
According to tradition, tradition, the city of Jerusalem is built on the place where Abraham nearly sacrificed his son Isaac, but was commanded by God not to do so. And after the Israelites had gone to Egypt to avoid a famine, been enslaved and then returned to Israel, it was Jerusalem that David chose as his capital city. That was also around 1,000 years before Jesus. Jerusalem was a key part of the first kingdom of Israel as a city. And it also became the religious hub because it was there that David's son Solomon built the temple which is the national center of worship for the Jews. And so in that time, all the heads of Israelite households were instructed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year to gather together for three major festivals. Now, such was the city's importance in biblical times that those who could not manage the journey to Jerusalem for those feasts, they were actually advised to at least pray towards Jerusalem, in which case their prayer would be heard as if they were present there. And to this day, all Jewish synagogues, as far as possible, face towards Jerusalem so that the prayers of those worshippers are directed there in accordance with their tradition. To followers of Jesus, the city of Jerusalem also remains of great significance and relevance, not only because of its history, but also because of its prophetic promise as a city for our future. But we'll talk more about that tomorrow, next week. You see, Bethlehem, as we know, was the birthplace of Jesus. Nazareth was where he grew up. But Jerusalem is the city that hosts most of the testimonies of faith to Christians. Jerusalem was where Jesus preached, where he ate his last meal with his disciples before his death where he was arrested, where he was put on trial, condemned to death, crucified and died, a man mocked and tortured by the occupying Romans. And it is where Christians believe that his tomb was found empty as he rose from the dead. And so Jerusalem then, in how we understand it, is a place of deep sorrow, of utter desolation, but it is also a place of great hope and redemption. However, while Jerusalem is this container, as we identified last week, that holds such deep significance and promise, the presence of the spirit of the empire of man has never been far off. When Jesus lamented over the city and the emergence of its brokenness, he said in Matthew chapter 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets 
and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jerusalem was a city that was meant to be a meeting place for Yahweh and his people. It was supposed to be a place where the greatest commandment would be practiced and pursued in the same way that the Babylonians practiced and pursued their desire to make a name for themselves. It was meant to be a city like no other. And so Jerusalem, as we know, has undergone many shifts as a city, as most cities do, from clearly being the place where Yahweh lives as we see it communicated in Scripture to what it is today. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. Now, if you went there today, I'm sure some of us here went. Have any of us been to Jerusalem? Oh, a lot of us have been. If you went to Jerusalem and you were unfamiliar with the significance of the city, I wonder what your impressions would be. Because today, Jerusalem is largely a divided city that sees constant conflict. And apparently, it's also a city that isn't easy to move around in. And it has a long story, lots of detail, lots to talk about. Um, but it remains the city of great significance. There is this wall that is built along the city. Um, the portions in the red there are the portions of Israel that have been cordoned off by that wall. And there's the little Gaza Strip. It's where all the bombings come from and happen. If I look at what Jerusalem looks like today and its proximity to, the, to what is around it, it seems a far cry from a city whose name comes from the Hebrew word for peace, the Hebrew word for the sense of completion, the word for harmony. Jerusalem seems far removed from that today. But if we're honest, and I, and I think we'll admit that, that there is something of Jerusalem in all the cities of the world. Jerusalem to me is like this microcosm of what the whole world is like. Cities are at odds with other cities. People within the cities are at odds with other people. There is conflict, there is dissatisfaction, there is oppression, there is dishonesty, etc., etc. And so I think, in fact, I know Jesus longs to gather up all the children of all these cities as a mother hen gathers up her chicks. Because all people are created in God's image and in God's kingdom inaugurated in Jesus, no one is elevated above others or is granted privilege at the expense of others. And scripture articulates for us God's love for the whole world and desire for everyone to experience new and abundant life. 
And so the Lord, as we know, requires that we do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with him. And this is an imperative that moves us, that stirs us to get involved with what is happening around us. And we do that so that when Jesus returns, and he will return, and he takes a census of the citizens of the holy city, he will know who gets to stay. I'm going to draw to a close now. But we've looked at two contrasting cities this morning. And there's a lot more that can be said, if my voice would allow it. But now we are going to spend some time in prayer. Um, and again, I want to direct our attention to two suburbs in our city. And this morning, um, I would want us to spend some time praying for, um, for sea winds. Um, that there is a picture taken outside Sea Winds um, Clinic. Sea Winds is a suburb that is very close to where Bernadette is ministering. It's squashed in between Lavender Hill and Freigrond. It's that little bit of, of, of land there. Um, those are the young mothers bringing their children to the clinic. And that's the one suburb we'll pray about. It's also a suburb that struggles with gangsterism. Um, unemployment is rife within that, within that suburb. And then the other suburb we'll pray for is Sea Point. Um, sea Point is the suburb in, in, in the, our city that has the highest number of practicing Jews. And I think most of us here are familiar also with with some of the issues that Seapoint has to wrestle with um, in, their, in, their, in their space, in their place in the city as well. And so we're going to break up right now into groups um, and hold on to some of the things that we believe God was saying to us this morning about our place in this city, the, the way he values this city, and bring before him again some of those broken issues that we long to see him step in and bring about reconciliation and bring it back into a space that reflects um, his kingdom completion and harmony and shalom.